Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Dr. Gemma King, the head of Biopsych Analytics and an external advisor to McKinsey & Co. She is also a former consultant to the Australian Defence Department, as well as the Australian Olympic swim team. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I do lots of different things, but primarily I'm a researcher and I am a um, research fellow at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane. And I look after PhD students and we're looking at psychophysiological research. So looking at human performance from the lens of how does your physiology and your psychology interplay to either make you a better person or um, how in, in attention to these factors can actually be a detriment to your performance. I also have founded my own um, consulting firm called Biopsych Analytics. And within that, I consult to a lot of C-suite executives, management consultants, um, lawyers, um, the Olympic team, swim team, and the Australian Institute of Sport, just to name a few. You mentioned the Olympics or the Olympic swimmers from Australia that you advise them. So obviously we're right in the thick of the Olympics right now. Tell us something we can learn from Olympic swimmers or athletes in general and how that can help us perform better in our day jobs. Yeah, I think with um, Olympic athletes, when you get to that level, like everybody's super fit, everybody's done an enormous amount of training, they've got this amazing, amazing skill set. And I think what differentiates between those that win and those that don't is really a mindset and being able to um, manage your stress um, under pressure and being able to harness that stress and to use it to optimize your performance rather than let, letting the stress get getting the better of you and choking under pressure. And so a lot of my work with uh, Olympic athletes was really looking at um, how, getting them to understand how stress impacts their physiology and how that physiology has a bi-directional relationship with their psychology and then how that psychology impacts their performance. And so it was really looking at um, educating them on the basic human behavior pr principles around stress, um, coming at it from you know, an evolutionary perspective, um, teaching them why do our bodies act the way they do under pressure, and then how can you harness that? And then also looking at getting a lot of psychophysiological granularity in their perception. So that really means that, okay, if you feel something, uh, you know, it's not just bad, but looking at there's different categories of bad. So what is making you feel bad exactly? Is it coming from your body? Is it coming from your mind? And then being able to um, understand how to get yourself out of that bad state and into a good state at will. And sort of like, you know, having mastery over your psychology and physiology. And, you know, I think this was really a bit of a game changer in terms of, um, you know, bridging these two usually disparate um, domains. So physiologists used to be over here and psychologists used to be over there and never did the twain that did they meet. But I think now, you know, particularly with the work we're doing, we're starting to see the impact they have on each other and how you can you know, improve performance. Right. Well, and, and this year obviously was so stressful, right? Uh, prob yeah. Probably the most stressful Olympics because of COVID. Is there anything we can learn from how COVID affected athletes um, and how COVID is affecting us? Yeah, I think that the uncertainty was the, was the killer with COVID because so many of the athletes, they didn't know whether they could train. They didn't know if they could go to that camp. They, 
you know, a lot of them had to move so they could get into out of their hotspots. And so this disruption was really um, problematic. And I think this is one of the things, the lessons that we learned with my work with the special forces is creating certainty within uncertainty. And how do you maintain um, equanimity in when, every, when the whole world is in chaos? And so we, we got a lot of those lessons about, you know, focusing on process, focusing on the controllables, um, understanding when, you, when your physiology was starting to get the better of you. And we, we learn a lot, of, a lot from those guys who had been in the most stressful, the most uncertain, you know, places on the planet. And we distilled those lessons, brought them back and transmuted them to something that the athletes could, could work with. But I think, you know, also there's the, the notion of the audience effect. You know, most of these athletes are really used to being in a, in a performance environment where there's screaming people and there's lots of hype. And, and for some athletes, that was terrifying, particularly some of the younger ones. And I think maybe not having all of that hype could have, you know, improved their performance. Where other athletes, they love that energy. They, they sort of build a riff off that, you know, the clapping and the screaming, people yelling their name, and that, that would really, like, propel them to go faster and um, so, you know, we, we spoke about, you know, have an, have an introspect about how do you think the lack of audience or would impact your performance? I think it's probably got a lot to do with introversion and extroversion. Right, right. Well, well, you, you've studied a lot to do with the brain and emotional intelligence. Can you talk to us about that in general in very basic terms? And so we can wrap our, our heads around sort of that as we sort of consider how we perform in the workplace? Yeah, so emotional intelligence, I think, you know, it's been around for 20 years, this, this notion, but it's, I think people are really starting to understand the importance of it. And I think there's been more like a, in organisations, more of an effective revolution where people go, wow, this stuff is not only really important from a moral perspective of understanding how people feel and, and being and caring about it, but it, um, having an emotionally intelligent workforce actually uh, makes you more successful and costs you less money. And I'll talk about how that, that plays out. So the basic principle of emotional intelligence, and I, there's many models, and as an academic, people fight over which models are more accurate. But So I use the, the model out of Yale, and it's basically emotional intelligence is the ability to first perceive emotions in yourself. So understanding when you're starting to get emotional, like you can feel it and having that, that acknowledgement and perception of it, but also being able to perceive emotions in others. So that's like emo micro emotion detection, um, just feeling the environment, like also in groups of people, even when you're on Zoom, understanding when someone's disengaged, someone's listening, someone doesn't agree with you, just looking at those little fluctuations in facial expression, emotional, like vocal tone, um, you know, pauses, you know, so that's emotional perception. Then it's also emotional understanding. So thinking, hmm, why is that person having that emotion or why am I having that emotion? And it's also about um, understanding that emotions can, um, two emotions that would seem seemingly opposite can mix and transmute into a third emotion. So it's about emotional forecasting, um, having a deep understanding of the way emotions mix and, and combine and transmute. So, for instance, an, an example of mixed emotions is you look at a picture of your grandmother and you feel both 
uh, happy but melancholy at the same time because you miss her, but you're looking at this picture of when you had a wonderful day. So two opposite emotions, and you can understand they, they, they're disparate. But because you have emotional understanding, you can, you can understand how you feel from that. Um, and so, yeah, emotional understanding of others is really important. So your boss is, is really annoying you and you know, okay, um, if I am angry right now, this is not going to be good for me. And that goes into that third component of emotional intelligence is emotional facilitation or use of emotion. So knowing how you can use your emotions to benefit yourself in the moment. So knowing that um, if you are emotionally expressive, in that way to your boss that's going to be advantageous to you or if you're emotionally not emotionally expressive that could be better for you and that goes into the fourth component which is emotional management so being able to um, dampen your emotions when you need to or being able to upregulate your emotions when you need to so say for instance for an olympic athlete you know you're feeling nervous how do you downregulate? but then you don't want to downregulate too much. You need to be able to amp yourself up and get yourself hyped and get the adrenaline surging through your veins so you perform better. And it's also, I suppose, for leaders or for team um, people running teams, you know that the team's got a certain job to, um, to perform. How do you either you know, ramp the team up or how do you um, get them down-regulated so they can concentrate? So it's not only emotional management of yourself, but emotional management of those around you. So that's kind of like, you know, academic um, model of emotions um, in, a, yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, that's really helpful. Now, what about with Zoom and in virtual conferences? Now, we've you had a year, over a year and a half now to learn about best practices. But when we apply EI to Zoom conferences, is there one takeaway or... Or, or one or two tips that you know you tell all your clients and and people you know who are getting guidance from you yeah so this is extremely difficult because humans have um emotion detection mechanisms in their brain that really um sat from the environment all of the different inputs so when you are meeting someone face to face, not only looking at their um, eye contact, their, their body positioning, um, their vocal intonation, but we also detect pheromones. So, um, you know, new research has shown that we, you know, that gut feeling that you get is actually due to the fact that you're sampling, um, you know, pheromones coming off that person into your subconscious. And so these are things like the smell of fear or um, if someone... Um, is not telling the truth, they will emit a different um, chemo signaling signature. And this is where you get that gutting. So you, you go, oh, you have that feeling about someone. It's actually like millions and millions of data points coming into your brain, your brain working them out and giving you a feeling, an intuition about, about what to say or what not to say or what that person's intention is. So when you go online, like you lose like 70% of this information and you're left literally with just a face there's often um, timing delay which is super important emotional detection really does take into account um, tempo timing which is off um, you know, on zoom um, but also you're missing the you know the bottom half of their body um, and also you're not getting the chemo signaling and um, so we're really kind of put behind when you're trying to make inferences about someone's behavior or intention when you're online and so what I say, and it's also very cognitively draining. And we know that if you're looking at your own face on Zoom, 
your um, metabolic um, cost of that is about 30% more than if you don't see your own face. So not only is it harder to understand what's really going on, but it's also really metabolically draining and you can get exhausted by the end of the day. I think all of us have had this incredible Zoom fatigue where at the end of the day you just feel totally fried because you're having to pay attention so hard to try and pick up all of everybody's intentions and it's all like, you know, kind of glitchy. And also we're not getting the oxytocin you know, which is the which is the attachment, the feel good hormone when you're in person. So when you're in person, you like might touch someone on the shoulder, or you might laugh together, or um, you know, just being close to people you you know care about you really um, increases your levels of oxytocin, oxytocin, which is a cortisol stress hormone antagonist. So very very difficult to navigate this Zoom world. So what I typically say is you, you know, half of your meetings should be done without. The, um, the camera on or absolutely definitely get on get online make sure you've got nothing in your teeth turn off your self view so you can't see yourself and then so you can maybe see the other um, attendees but you're not getting that cognitive drain from looking at yourself or even um, if you really want to know how someone's doing in your team call them and we know from research that people's um, emotion detection is much greater by just vocal uh, vocal input rather than having vocal plus um, visual input because the visual input distracts you and you know you can people can um, pretend they're okay they can put on makeup they can change the lighting you can't really tell if they're not okay but it's very it's very much it's much easier to detect fluctuations in people's emotional state through the voice only and in fact interestingly there's some um, insurance companies that will employ the visually impaired because they know that their auditory cortex of their brain is much more highly developed and they've got a they are much better able to detect lies and, and non-truths than visual uh, normal sighted people huh so, bit of, that's bit really of interesting fact. Yeah. So if you want to know how someone is, call them. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best advice. Yeah. Um, because right now we're going toward a, a hybrid sort of um, approach right now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're trying to open up, but variants are getting in the way. But so we're starting to have meetings, but Zoom seems to be is going to stay. Right. So should we mix up meetings? Should we take a lot of breaks? There's different guidance here. Is there any sort of best practices as we look toward more in-person meetings? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one of the major findings of of recent is um, the concept of psychological safety and trust. And that in order to be a high-performing team, you really need to have psychological safety within that team and trust between the members. And so this is work um, from Amy Edmondson out of Harvard. So she's the one who coined the the term psychological safety. And interestingly, um, Google, they did this project, Aristotle, where they looked at thousands and thousands of data points over many years to try and ascertain what what are the factors that create a high-performing team. And what they found is that psychological safety was the was the the most important factor for a high-performing team. It's the construct under which all other constructs nested, which is really interesting for like, you know, uh, Googlers, you think that that these fluffy concepts wouldn't be important to them, but they found it was really, really super important. And I think with that, you know, I work with the military, they're starting to understand this as well. And everybody's starting to understand trust and psychological safety is important. So then we left with this massive problem. How do you 
um, you know, create, foster and maintain trust and psychological safety in an online environment. Very, very difficult. And so what the research is saying is that at some stage, you, you really should have um, an in-person meeting with team members at least once so they can establish communication norms. They can, it's kind of like dogs sniffing each other's shirt <laughs> out. You really kind of like get the essence of what that person's about. How much can you trust them by seeing them in person? And then, um, you know, you can have effective um, teams and, and, and meetings on Zoom. So long as you, you know, you have some pretty specific rules and it's around um, that a certain proportion of the meeting is spent doing that social lubrication doing that banter, talking about our lives, talking about non-work um, topics, so you can build up that feeling of social capital, familiarity, similar, sim similarity, likeness. You can see a depth to that person beyond just their work role. And you actually have to make a concerted effort to do this. It doesn't happen organically like it does you know, in the lift or at the, at the drink fountain. You have to make a concerted effort to create space where you can foster and maintain psychological safety and trust. And there's a formula for trust. Um, in order to trust someone or to be perceived as trustworthy, you have to be um, uh, A, B, C. So you have to have ability. So people need to know that you know what you're talking about. Then there's B, benevolence. So people need to know that you actually care about them. And then you need to demonstrate this consistently. Um, so just think ABC. And so with Zoom and online communication, the benevolence part becomes quite difficult. So that's where you have to actively um, engage in benevolent belonging indicator type behaviors. That's, that's great advice. Really great advice. Now, what about uh, you deal with a lot of leaders? There's a lot of leaders uh, you know, listening in on this and innovators and entrepreneurs. Any lessons that you can impart uh, for them to become better leaders? Yeah, I think the entrepreneur space is super interesting because, they, you know, anyone who's an entrepreneur has sucked the bone marrow out of them to get <laughs> ahead, to get where they are. But like, you know, you're doing every job. It's thankless. There's like so much uncertainty. You've got to put in everything in, you know, in order to get, you know, you, to reap the benefits. And they work very long hours and it's lonely and it's stressful and it's, you know, uncertain. So, you know, if you really want to be a great leader, um, I think, and this is what we, you know, we teach um, within McKinsey Executive Leadership Programs, you have to lead yourself first. If you can't manage yourself, there's no way you can be respected as a team um, leader. There's no way you can even care about the others around you and therefore you can't lead an organisation. And so... Um, it sounds really like, you know, boring and woo-woo, but self-care is critical. And it's like, um, I like to use the analogy of, um, you know, like deep sea divers, guys that go at depth. They know that if they go at a certain um, subsurface, um, so many metres below subsurface, they have to go into a um, decompression chamber so they don't get the bends, right? It's just science. Otherwise they get nitrogen bubbles in their joints. It's super painful and they damage themselves. And I think um, entrepreneurs really need to see themselves at deep sea, as deep sea divers, that the amount of time you spend, you know, at your computer, um, plugging away, 
thinking hard, not sleeping, you need to spend equal amount of time in some kind of deep compression chamber to eliminate the negative effects of that that deep dive or that lack of sleep or, that, or, or whatever, because you can't get away with it, right? It's just science. It's physics. Like if you don't sleep, if you don't eat, if you don't move, it will catch up on you. It's just basic biology, basic physics. And um, you, no one gets away scot-free. And you want to be a marathon run to, runner. You, want, you don't want to be a sprinter. You want to be in the long haul for, you know, weeks, days and months and hopefully years. And, and therefore you need to take care of the machinery that's going to get you there okay so that means and i think there's just some really basic things you can do if you can't sleep much at least sleep consistently if you get if you're going to bed late at least go to bed late at the same time every night um, and we've found from all the data with whoop that this is critical for performance um, be careful about putting what you put in your body like if you had you know a really expensive you know the clarin p1 you would not be throwing cans of coke down the engine Treat your body the same way. Stop throwing things in your body that create inflammatory markers um, because they take metabolic energy to deal with and get rid of. And, and you need to really engage in energy management as an um, entrepreneur. Your energy system is literally like the, your metric of success. So be very careful about what you're putting into your body. Um, also move, get out. Um, we know from a lot of research that putting pressure on the um you've got pads in the bottom of your feet and what they do is they um, increase the amount of oxygenated blood to your brain by 20 or 30 percent so if you want to solve a problem you want to get creative you want to think you want to go into a negotiation you know, on your game go for a run or walk beforehand and we also know that um when you put pressure on your bones you release a hormone called osteocalcin and this osteocalcin has been found to increase spatial reasoning and your memory. So, um, and we know this from um, NASA and dementia patients who don't um, walk very much, really does impact IQ points and um, your ability to recall. So they're my, they're my hacks for entrepreneurs, um, sleep consistency, eat well and move your body. It's all the things your grandmother told you to do. <laughs> nothing new here <laughs> right right and i think what you're saying is it doesn't take you don't have to be a marathon uh, runner you just have to do a minimum amount of exercise and you just have to yeah. be thoughtful about what you put in your body and mm -hmm. and get into a routine of sleep really yeah that it walking meetings um, done, of course <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because you know as you know covid has stressed out all of on all of the planet, right? And even yeah. though we were home, most of us, um, it was hard to keep those routines. And, and I think that what happens under stress is so like stress is um, a very primitive response. It's been adapted to be make us successful in the savannas of East Africa. So when you were stressed back then, you know what you had to do? You either you know had to run at that thing with a club or run away from it, right? So it was a very physically um, orientated response. And you're sitting at home, trapped in a four walls um, in front of a computer, getting all of these stress responses. And you like, it kicks off by just thinking about something stressful. And so every cell in your body is saying, run, run, but you're here stuck in front of your computer. So, you know, your biology is banging up against your, um, you know, your stress response and, and, and our environment. And it's incredibly frustrating. 
Right. Um, so that's why you have to move when you're stressed. You've got to burn off the cortisol, burn off the adrenaline so you can reset and start to think, you know, again. Absolutely. Now you talk about teamwork in, in some of your um, research. Tell us the latest findings in, you know, how do we collaborate better? Are there certain tips that you can impart upon us? Yeah, so um, currently with this executive leadership program, we're looking at psychological safety and the, the biological, psychophysiological state of the leader and how this impacts um, the team. And so, like, you know, as I spoke about before, like, you know, if you're um, a, a boss, you've had a terrible night, you've had a fight with your, um, your partner on the way to work or before you Zoom, this stuff like is contagious. So we talk a lot about emotional contagion and you have to be very careful about your emotional state going into a, a meeting or going into like some presentation because people smell fear and stress. Um, and it's a hunter-gatherer um, self-protection you know, um, mechanism that our clan could pick up the, the danger signals just by smelling or looking at, at one person. Um, and we're very, very good at detecting stress in other people. And, and we also catch it very, very quickly. So I think for, um, for leaders that you have to be very um, cognizant of your emotional state before you interact with your, your team. And I think that, you know, with so much uncertainty in the world, um, people don't know like where they belong or whether they're going to have a job next week or um, is, you know, what, where do, they, where do they sit in the scheme of things? So I think as a leader, um, one of the best ways to foster psychological safety is to actively and frequently and often um, speak in terms that um, ingratiate belonging, that, you know, use belonging indicators um, in all of your feedback. So, for instance, if you've got a, you know, you have to do a performance review for one of your um, subordinates and you need to tell them, give them negative feedback, you would say, you know, you'd preface the negative feedback by I'm telling you this because next time, you know, when we get this client on board in the future, when you are doing this with our organization, you will be better. And so what that does on a neurobiological level is humans are constantly looking for in-group, out-group indicators. We're constantly scanning the environment. Do I belong? Am I getting kicked out, kicked out from the clan? Do they want me? Where's my place here? And I think recent research out of nature showed that 70% of humans' um, thought is actually socially um, moderated thoughts. It's all about our social place in the world. Because from a hunter-gatherer perspective, if you were rejected from a clan or you were cast out from your tribe, it meant sure certain death and a terrible, horrible, lonely death, violent death. So humans have got this really strong inbuilt uh, rejection detection mechanism in their brain. We're constantly looking, are we in or are we out? And so in modern um, societies, you know, teams are like modern clans. And so people spend a lot of their time thinking about their place in that, in that team. And if you're feeling uncertain about, you know, whether you're valued, whether you've got longevity, a very good percent of your um, your cognitive resources are going towards thinking about that rather than going towards thinking about the job. So if you make your team members feel uncertain, you've literally got a team that's running on half a brain. And the, the remedy for this is belonging indicators. So if you can preface every meeting or every interaction with something that sort of anchors that person to the clan, to the, to the team, 
and makes them feel like they've got a future, you will get so much more out of that person than if you just talk normally. It's a, it's a secret hack for like really placating that primitive brain and making people feel valued. That makes so much sense. And thank you for that hack. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to use that. Do it with your, I mean, your relationships with, you know, there's a really interesting study where they looked at um, people who had gotten on Tinder and they um, did a, a linguistic analysis of their, of their script of what they spoke about. And in those pairs where future dates were talked about, um, 60% more money was spent on that date <laughs> so so if, so if the girl was like oh so where should we go on our next date he ordered the lobster <laughs> he ordered the french champagne oh my god i didn't speak about the future dates and i mean you can i mean that's just a great analogy for like um you know how do you keep good employees how do you you know if you've got a, a really valued employee tell them <laughs> tell them they're going to be here next week <laughs> and they'll put in so much more hard work and they'll you know they'll um, they want to go the extra extra mile for you that makes so much sense this this has been great Gemma. thank you so much for for sharing your insights with us today thanks for joining us i hope you enjoyed the show please like it leave a review and subscribe see you soon